the Sermon on the Mount, which we have subtitled, The Way of Jesus. And so we kind of were rolling through the Beatitudes, and uh, I loved this sermon so much, and I was learning so much, and I'm like, you know what, let's just keep on, keep on rolling. So we kind of changed the, uh, the subtitle here uh, to uh, The Way of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be talking about Beware of Doing to be seen. Beware of doing to be seen. Now, I got to say this at the beginning. Just allow me. That, that title right there, it, it, needs, it needs some wiggle room. Let me give you an example. Like when the husband does some chores around the house, that kind of that needs to be noticed, right? You know, if he picks up after himself or, you know, takes laundry and it does some laundry or, you know, does dishes. Like, you know, we need to be noticed. Amen, fellas? I appreciate that. Amen. I noticed how I didn't wear any green today, and so I didn't want to be adversarial uh, with that. I'm, Pastor Mike was just in your face with that, but he's from Pennsylvania, right? Um, I pastored there for seven years uh, as, in an assistant role, and uh, growing up in L.A., we did not have a team. Now, we have t- now they have two, but we didn't have a team, and so when I pastored there, that's how I became an Eagles fan, if you're wondering how you kind of connect the dots. But I love the Niners, too, and I promise you when I say that, I do. It's just tough when the two teams meet, right? It's like, so I chose not to wear any colors today. But uh, this kind of, th- this concept of doing uh, to, be, to be seen. Um, a blog mom, Rita Templeton, said this, My husband expects a thank you for doing the same stuff I do every day. And all the ladies are like, amen, that's right. So a little bit of wiggle room here, okay? The truth is we all could probably notice what others do a little bit more, and it would probably help out relationships. Would you agree? But that's actually not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, so Jesus isn't, uh, we, we could notice each other a little bit more. We could maybe say thank you a little bit more if, if the husband, you know, does the stuff that the ladies do all the day and don't ever get thankful for. Maybe we still could get thanked, right? And it would maybe help some relationships. But my goal this morning is going to, my goal is to be extremely uh, just relevant as well as practical for you. And so you're going to even notice as I, as I preach through this text that we're going to kind of uh, jump around a little bit. And I'm I want you to know I'm, I'm trying to be very cognizant of the time. I promise you that. And uh, I'm trying to love you in that way. There's nothing wrong uh, with sports, but we obviously were going to have service. We were joking even with some of the men, hey, we should have bumped our service up a little earlier. I'm aware who starts playing at noon, okay? Um, and so I promise you that I'll uh, be cognizant of your time. But I want to I allow the scriptures to weigh in on us uh, before, we, before we head our way. And so my goal is to be practical and uh, very, very uh, relevant for you. Let's notice verse number one of Matthew 6. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So that word there for alms, uh, it refers to kind of your, your acts of mercy, your, your pity towards someone else. If you can kind of, I'm going to change, and we're going to start using the word kind of like our our deeds of righteousness kind of towards others here. This is what Jesus is saying here, that, that, that when you're doing your alms, when you're doing your acts of mercy and pity and love and compassion, your righteousness, and he gives several examples later in this chapter of that type of righteousness on display, and it's towards someone else. Verse 1 basically sets up the whole next section of Jesus' sermon here. And so if you grasp what Jesus is saying 
in verse number one, then you're going to understand what he's doing in the next several um, verses in this chapter. So he gives the warning to, to take heed, to beware of, to be on guard against practicing your alms or practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Biblically speaking here, righteousness is a, here is about right relationships. Right relationship with God, right relationship with yourself, and right relationship with others. And so you're going to see those three kind of on an example going forward. If you, if you simply, if you're just simply about kind of keeping a set of rules or, you know, having good behavior, if you think this is what it's about, it's, it's so much more than that. It's all the ways that we contribute to the flourishing of the world according to the way God designed it to be. Okay, and so this is actually embodied in these three examples. Let's see verse number two. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may glory of men. They may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse number five says, and when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are for the love, for, for love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse number 16, moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And so these were considered, in a sense, to be the, the three um, big practices of a holistic, righteous life in the Hebrew tradition. And so if giving is kind of to indicate right living or loving towards others, the way it reads might make you think of kind of charitable donations or uh, maybe giving in an offering plate or tithing. But it's Actually, a bit more than that. It's important to keep in mind that in the first century world, there was no such thing as a state-run welfare. If the poor and oppressed in the community were going to be cared for in this first century world, it was going to have to be the community around them that was going to meet their needs and going to take care of them. The generosity was going to come from the people. So in some respects, you can consider this a lot like our justice efforts towards the poor and the marginalized in our world today. And so, yes, it is, in a sense, it is your giving the way that maybe you would think or maybe that way most preachers would like to preach on is like, hey, let's put some money in that box back there. But it's, it's way more than that. It's the benevolent nature and way you live towards others. That's kind of the, 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 the holistic approach to this. And then prayer, that's obviously was a display relating rightly before God. Displaying your love for him. It's your relationship with him. And then fasting similarly dealt with the righteousness within us. Fasting was a spiritual discipline to train one's dependency upon God by abstaining from 
some earthly thing. Often we think of food, and it can be food, but you can fast from all kinds of things. If you're um, used to uh, doing certain practices or certain habits, and you say, you know what, for the month of February, I'm not going to do that. And every time I want to or I think about it, that's I'm going to spend time with God or, or, or whatever the case is. And so it's these spiritual disciplines. Jesus is hitting all the ways that we might pursue what God calls righteousness. Now, maybe we would express those things differently today, right? But he point, the point is, is that Jesus is talking holistically about who we are and what we do. How do we love others? How do we love God? If that is, uh, you know, how do we, um, uh, is it restoring people uh, to the world that the way that it was supposed to be, the way God created it? All of that, those are versions of righteousness. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 1, if you're doing that righteousness, if you're doing that, those, those, those things that come out of you, those, those virtues for the sake of others, then you've got your reward is what he's saying. Now, it's worth noting here that Jesus assumes, hear me, that we're all going to be practicing our righteousness. Jesus doesn't say, um, uh, he, he says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. He doesn't say if. He says when. So the expectation of citizens of the kingdom, right? The kingdom is ours when we're going through the Beatitudes. The the followers of Jesus, those that are going to be on the way of Jesus, following his path, this is going to be a life that contributes to the flourishing of the world that is the way God designed it. It's going to impact others. It's going to be vertical as well as, as horizontal. And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to be this kingdom way of living, if you're going to actually follow the way of Jesus, these are going to be righteousness acts, in a sense, that are going to flow out of your life. Now, I bring that up because I've talked to multiple people over the years. And they say, and they go to these verses right here, and they'll say, God wants my heart in it. So if my heart's not in it, I'm not going to do it. Ah, that's also not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't trying to give us an out on these holistic, righteous way of living, of uh, of being benevolent towards others, of praying and having a relationship with God and fasting, disciplining yourself so you can walk more with God. He's not. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying be on guard against doing these things for the eyes of others. That's the thread of this message, and I love this about Jesus. Because he's coming after something that we must admit lies in the heart of our human condition. To do right for the wrong reasons. Have you ever been there? To do right but for the, for the wrong reasons? The that I, or he, the, the, Jesus assigns a, a label to those types of actions. He calls them hypocrites. And I studied and studied this week. And so uh, the uh, kind of the best that I could from my research, Jesus was the first one to use this word in this particular way with this connotation to it. Prior to Jesus, the word in Greek that we translate hypocrite was not used in any way in a critical way. It simply referred to an actor or a performer or someone that kind of just wore 
wore a mask in a, in a play. So Jesus is saying those who do what they do just so they can be seen by others, he's saying they're just actors. They're just performers. It's not, it's not real. The heart really isn't in it. This righteousness is what we would call theatrical righteousness. It's a performance for the applause of others. And there were many that would do that. They were in the playwright, and there was nothing wrong with that. Well, Jesus is now connecting the, the thought process that they had there and using it in a critical way of those that are just doing godly things for the applause of others. Jesus is saying that this is, that this is not the real thing. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking to a religious culture of people who are showing off their piety. Honestly, that's probably the first thing that comes to our mind when we hear the word hypocrite. We think of some religious person that is holier than thou. That's honestly sometimes what we think of is they, they're a hypocrite. They, they, they act like they're this, but we don't know if it's, if it's really true. Now, our culture is not really kind of one that people by and large parade around their prayer life. They don't get a bullhorn you know, out there. You know, we don't really kind of live in that culture. This can be a little difficult for us to translate into our context, but I want us to. And so for the next 20 minutes or so, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, I promise. Uh, I want to take it into our world. I want, to, I want to bring it to your doorstep. I want to bring it to uh, what your eyes see and what your fingers do and just like your, your, uh, you know, your, your everyday life. And so it might not seem like it applies, but if you dig a little bit, a little bit I believe that we're going to find that this kind of, though it might not be overly religious looking, it still lives in the heart of each and every one of us in this room. So here's what I mean. Most everyone wants for people to think we're better than we actually are. Whether that's in the religious realm or any other realm, we want people to think that we're better than we actually are. Let me ask you a question to help you kind of diagnose yourself. We doing okay this morning? All right. Do you ever find pressure to maintain an image? Let me put it another way. Do you ever find pressure to keep up an appearance for others? I know I do. I mean, this is like smacks me right between my eyes. I mean, this is a thing in me. There, there's a thing in me that... That, that wants to be seen a certain way. For people to think that I'm smart, that I'm wise, that I know what I'm doing as a preacher and teacher of the word of God. Or that I carry myself in a way that gives people the impression, oh, he's a good husband, he's a good father. Thanks for letting Blake sit with you there, Moody. I, 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 I wanna be perceived as that. And I'll be honest with you, this can be very difficult because my life is very public. My life is like all eyes on the sense are so often on me and I got to live a certain way and I've got to lead my family in a certain way and, and I'm supposed to be the, the one that is, that's praying and, and, and all that. I find myself kind of with a mixed bag of motivations, genuinely wanting to teach and lead you in the way of Jesus. And then also wanting you to think that I do it well. Do you understand my transparency this morning? Do you understand what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to be real with you. Like, this is where this type of, uh, of Jesus' sermon, it's like, yes, this is, this is even in my own life. There's a motivation of, of yes, I, I walk the way of Jesus. Hey, walk this way too, but then I also want you to think that I do it well. This is what Jesus is talking about here. 
This is how we apply it in the 21st century. For some of us, it, might, it, it may look religious. It may look like we want people to think that we are a, a good Christian person, that, that, that we go to church and that, and that we read, our word, read the Word of God. But for some of us, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's religious looking. You're not concerned with people that think that you love God per se. and we, we, You do, but that's not necessarily what you're concerned with. You're concerned with whether or not they think you're on the right side of history or that you stand up for the righteous causes. Take the handling of ourselves on social media and our culture. You remember June 2020? The pressure of, you know, you've, you, you, you've got you've to post certain things. And, and listen, so you, you take things like that. Call it virtual signaling or whatever. But social media has become this one-stop shop for righteous theater. Look at me and look at what I'm about. Look at what I stand for. Look at what I speak up for. And we treat likes and hearts and retweets as justification and validation of who we are and what we do. Now, we need to speak up against injustice. That is a good thing. That is a very righteous thing to do. But what I'm saying is, is we often, if we're not careful, we do it with a theatrical motivation behind it. Can I give you another example? Maybe it's posting something inspirational about my morning Bible reading. Now, what's wrong with me reading my word in the morning? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Absolutely not. That's actually a wonderful thing, and I think we all ought to probably do it more. Spend more time in the word in 2023. That's a, that's a good thing. Is it wrong for me to post a picture of how good my time with Jesus was? Absolutely not. That might spur someone on to, hey, you know what? I should get into the word today. But... I have to ask, what is the motivation for wanting others to see my good deeds? Is it to spur them on, or is it to build some kind of image for myself? Or maybe you do it in other ways. Maybe you kind of fish for personal compliments. Or maybe when you're in a, when you're in a conversation, you'll make sure that you add to that conversation the good things that you're doing. All of the, maybe it's activist things or, or it's just other things where you'll get to the point where they say, oh, this is a good person. Ryan's a good dad. Ryan's a, Ryan's a good husband. And so I'm going to get out all of those beautiful things. Here's the point. It doesn't matter what category you fit in. And there's probably others. But I, I know what today is, and I don't want to just keep bringing up these categories for you. It doesn't matter what category you live, that you live in. But this is the temptation in some form lives in us. The point is that we're constantly tempted to live for the applause and the approval of others. Whether that's your Instagram followers or your family, your parents, your friends, church members, and so on. Let's not allow that applause to become the driving motivation behind what you do. That's the text, my friends. So let's go through the verses again here. Because Jesus warns something. It's, it, it just shocks me. When I read, reread it and reread it this week, it just, it's amazing. Look at verse number two again. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So he tells us to guard against it, and it's just, his warning is just so interesting. Verse five. And when thou prayest, that thou, that thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. 
Verse 16, moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus' warning is interesting to me. It's not that severe, right? It's it's not that severe. He doesn't threaten this theatrical righteousness with like fireballs from hell or lightning bolts from heaven. It's nothing like that. It's not at all. He simply says, those who do what they do to be seen by others have received their reward. Essentially, they got what's coming. They've got it. And Jesus just leaves it there. And if we just pass over that, and we don't see the, the gravity of you have your reward, then we're going to just think, oh, this is, this is no big deal. Jesus is saying the momentary rush of dopamine, the temporary boost in self-esteem, the momentary affirmation given to you by that group of people is what you get, and that's it. You know what he's teaching on? He's teaching on the reality mentioned in Proverbs 29, the fear of man. And the fear of man, it's, it's living for the approval of others. It brings a snare. It brings a snare. It, bring, it brings a trap. So that fear of man, it looks and, and maybe feels for a moment really appealing, but doesn't actually give us what we're looking for. The point being that treating the applause of others as the ultimate reward in life is ultimately a futile endeavor because the approval is so fleeting. It's so, it, it's so momentary. It comes and it goes. I mean, consider for a moment how many people in our culture alone have fallen from grace. Listen, our culture, or our world has a phrase for it, cancel culture. I mean, people that have been esteemed and loved and adored, they say the wrong thing, they tweet the wrong thing, or someone goes back some 10 years ago that they tweeted, oh, and they fall from grace. It's so fleeting. That moment of praise, that moment of applause, it's insufficient. Your posts get swallowed up in the ocean of online activity. Your good deeds get forgotten with the passage of time. In the case of my sermons, normally by Tuesday, they're no longer in anyone else's mind. So there's, I love hearing from you, by the way, that the Lord's working in your life. Don't get me wrong. But like, I don't stand in the back there so everyone goes, hey, good message. It's fleeting doesn't mean that if God puts that on your heart to tell me that you can't. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's fleeting. And normally by Tuesday, no one's thinking about what we've talked about. And that's okay. It makes it so insufficient because it puts us in a spot. Hear me. And here's why it's so the weight of what Jesus said. You always need more. It's fleeting. There's always someone else to impress. It's like a hamster wheel. We never stop chasing it. We end up living this emotional state, this emotional roller coaster, hingent upon what others are saying and thinking, giving us a value. And that's why Jesus says, if you're going to live that way, you've got your reward because it doesn't last. Oh, there's weight to this. It's heavy, heavy, heavy. 
constantly managing our image. We have to think a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, vote a certain way, or even conform to their ideas of righteousness, which sometimes are way over what God's idea of righteousness is. We wind up living under the tyranny of approval or disapproval of other people, which suffocates us and suffocates others. We'll end up going to the grave wondering if we have the approval of that someone. I guarantee it because it doesn't last. You never get enough praise. So hear me, please. Hear me, hear me, hear me. We're, we're, we're going to wrap this up. I'm looking at the clock, I promise you. Whatever means you use to garner the praise and the approval of other people, it will never be enough. Never be enough. You'll never speak about enough social issues. You'll never help enough people. You'll never quote enough Bible in your sermons. You'll never pray enough in your private life. You will never, ever, ever, ever get enough. It's a trap. And if you live by the approval of people, you will die. It's a trap. It's a trap. So Jesus is saying, if you want to settle for acceptance, if you want to settle for approval, admiration of others, and the defining goal of your life, he says, okay, knock yourself out. Go for it. And for those of you who maybe previously thought that this was the greatest thing, and it's like, all right, well, if, if there's something more, then what is it? Well, let's go through these verses again. Let's just keep moving through the text. Verse 3 of Matthew 6. But, so this is what you do, or don't do this, but when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Let thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. I'll talk more about that in a moment, but it's it's not that your right hand doesn't really know that your left hand's giving. Okay? It's just symbolic here in nature. Verse number six. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth thee secretly shall reward thee openly. Verse number 17. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So when Jesus says to do these things in secret, he's not saying the point of it is not to hide your works. He's not, he's just saying that, you know, your, your, your right hand can't know what your left hand's giving. It has nothing really to do with you doing it in private. You've got to remember, this is one little bit in a much larger sermon where one page over in your Bible, Jesus said that you are to be the light of the world that men are to see your good works. Men are to see the way that you live and what? To glorify the Father. So Jesus isn't now changing the page and saying, you've got to do everything secret and you know, you've got to act like you're wicked and all of a sudden inside, oh, you're really spiritual. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's all about motivation. Jesus says, secret here. Jesus' solution to our performance problem is to change the audience. It's to change the audience. We really ought to motivate, what, what really ought to motivate the things that you do isn't the notice, notice of others, but rather the notice of God. And here's the thing, we're born with a desire to be noticed. Parents with kids, you know this, right? Kids are always saying, hey, dad, mom, look at this. You know, watch me jump off this. Watch me climb up this tree that is way too tall. Right? We're constantly, do this, do that. My kids, <coughs> excuse me, they, they, they love to see me laugh. They love to see me smile. Sometimes they do the same thing over and over and over again just to crack me up. Sometimes my kids will tell me, you know, these, the, the, the same joke. Why? Because they want to see daddy laugh. They don't do it so that I'll love them more. They do it because they love me. 
And so we love to be seen. We, we, we have this innate desire within us. And the point that Jesus is making is that you are made for the same, just like those kids, but not merely for your earthly parents, but for your Father who is in heaven. You have a Father in heaven who loves you and who has made you for his delight and has made you for his applause. Friends, I want you to know something. You, my friend, were made to be noticed. Did you hear me? You were made to be noticed. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You were made to be seen. You were made to be loved and adored and delighted and, and approved of, but not by the eyes of men, but by the eyes of God, your Father. And that is your reward, my friend. His delight. His delight. That's your reward. When God began to show, I was like, Lord, that's my reward. It just put a smile on my face that I'm seen by God. That he delights in me. So when you do things that align with his will, regardless of what others see, when you love others and you pursue him, when you choose to live for his eyes, he delights in you. C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses and shall find approval shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in his divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. I think somewhere along the line, I fear that many of us started believing that God didn't actually really kind of find joy in the deeds in which we did. And and I, and I know where we sometimes get that because we don't want to associate salvation and, our, and, and worth to God in anything connected to what we've done because it's all Jesus. And so sometimes if we're all that, I think sometimes we negate the fact that God actually looks down and sees your good righteousnesses and he finds delight. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Ephesians 5.8, For ye were sometimes in darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Walk as children of light. And at the verse, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. And so he delights in you. The theologian Frederick Dale Bruner said this, it is important that believers know that their heavenly father notices what they do. And notices not merely in a deistic way, like a distant grandfather, but in a personal way, as a living father. Disciples should know their sacrifices are worth it, that their buckling, uh, are bucking public opinion and visibility gets a response somewhere. Human beings are made in the image of God to be noticed and to want to be noticed by God. So the only way, my friend, for us to stop the theatrical type of righteousness is literally to starve it out. It's to start to stop 
worrying about other people's eyes and trust that the Lord's eyes are the only ones that matter. And if Jesus is to be believed here, if we're to believe, these are his words, this is his sermon, if, we, if he's to be believed here, that means every act of love towards your neighbor, every pursuit that you make to know him better, every discipline you undertake to become like him, every step in following the way of Jesus is seen and it's celebrated in heaven by God. There is no gift you give. There's no sacrifice that you make. There's no prayer that you pray. And you mamas, I know you're praying mamas. You're praying for those kids. You're praying for those grandkids. And sometimes you don't see the impact and you don't see the effect of that. Listen, heaven hears those prayers. Heaven delights in those prayers. No encouragement that you ever share. No word or deed that will ever go unnoticed or uncelebrated by your heavenly father. Man, this is good news. You start reading in verse number one of chapter six, and you're like, yikes, this is me sometimes. I have, this, I have this dual motivation. But listen, when you begin to understand what Jesus is ultimately teaching, that you have the Father's delight in him, and it changes the way you live. But you want to know what the best part is? It's not just that God takes notice, and oh, he takes notice. But that because of Jesus, we can have the confidence that he will always notice. It will never fade. You ever have bad weeks? You ever have bad months? Have you ever put a whole bad year together? It doesn't change. God's delight and his eye for you and his love because of Christ, it never changes. God's approval and acceptance, it's yours. It's secured. The good news of the gospel is not that God doesn't just care about what we do and he only cares about what Jesus does. That's not what the good news of the gospel is. The good news of the gospel for you is that when we do wrong and we don't live right, he's never going to change how he feels towards us because of Jesus, because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we've received the forgiveness and the cleansing of our sins, that we now have a justified standing position before God. It's because of what Christ did on the cross for us that there's nothing you can do to change any part of his opinion towards you. And you know what it means? It means you no longer need the approval of me. It means you no longer need the approval of your spouse. It doesn't mean that we don't love them and we don't love them rightly. But listen, the, we don't give them that power. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to your spouse to put the burden on them to validate you. They were not meant to validate you. Jesus was. And so the point of this is that we've got to stop doing for others. It doesn't mean that we stop doing. It's just the audience of doing changes. You most likely will not necessarily change the way that you're living. That's not what this message is. Jesus is trying to hit the heart for why we're doing what we're doing. And when you take a full look at the gospel and you realize, man, I've already got his delight in Jesus. I've got it all. So now let me just be benevolent because I don't need anything from those people. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, I, I, I've got everything that I need. And so I can live radically before others, not for the praise of man, because of Jesus. 
There's already applause in heaven. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? This awesome news of this freedom to live radically because you're already delighted in only comes in trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you do not know him as your Savior, you need to bow down before him, confess your sin before him, and ask him to save you. That's why he came. That's why he died on the cross some 2,000 years ago, to save you from your sins. It's beautiful. We can be free from the hamster wheel of approval. We can be free from the tyranny of trying to be good enough. And we can be free from fear, self-doubt, insecurity, and you can be set free to receive true life like Jesus gives, to just live open-handedly. Ah, not so my deacon see. Ah, not so my spouse sees. Not so my children see. Not so the greatest people in the world, our church sees. Not so that my neighbors see. Got both of my neighbors here today. Because Jesus already sees it. I believe this can revolutionize our service. Should we thank people? Yeah. Would it help relationships a little bit more? Yeah. Husband, notice everything your wife does. Wife, notice everything the husband does. Children, yes. But when we don't need that, you know what you'll find? That thank you means more. Because I'm not requiring it because I got it from Jesus. That thank you note, now it, can, now it can minister to me. But if I'm not understanding what Jesus is teaching here, I'm gonna be like, yeah, you should have written me a thank you note. Stop working and doing for others. Because if that's what you're doing, sobering words, Jesus says, you've got that dopamine hit. But you're gonna need more tomorrow and the next day. Where if we'll release it unto Jesus, he just rewards you with his delight. And he does it openly in your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed.